called a, a rough stretch in Revelation due to the fact that, that uh, the successive chapters are dealing with, with various judgments. Uh, this is probably difficult in any time in any culture to, to deal with the issues uh, of judgment. It's particularly difficult in our culture, in our time, uh, to deal with, with judgment as this is, not, um, this is not the way our culture speaks or the way our, our culture tends to, tends to think, meaning that, that um, judgment and being judgy is thought of as a negative in, in our culture and, and in our time. Uh, secondarily, even within, within the church, because the church in America has not, uh, to this point, experienced any sort of great persecution, uh, any sort of great... Um, uh, great attacks on, on who it is, any, any sort of lack of lack or loss of freedom. Uh, it is harder for us to understand sometimes where the book of Revelation is coming from and where John comes from and what, what Jesus is trying to say to him, uh, say to, to John and then to the churches in Asia and then to us through that. Uh, simply pointing out again, just as, as a reminder, remember that John writes to churches in, in Asia, the seven churches in Asia. They were, they were acquainted and they were familiar with persecution. He writes to in, in, the, in the first century, within, within years of his writing, the majority of people who claim to be Christ followers would experience massive forms of persecution. Uh, uh, they would up into including the, the, loss, of, the loss of life for, for their faith. Uh, the emperors would be largely opposed to Christianity for the next 300 years. Uh, so into that context, into the context of loss of life, into the context of discrimination against their faith, into the, into the context of, of, of separation from being able to be involved in the economic systems, uh, separation from being able to be involved in the, in the cultural systems. Uh, Christians were, uh, were outsiders, and they were used to being outsiders. Worse than just being outsiders, they were used to being persecuted and mistreated for their, for their faith. So then... Uh, as has been historically true of the, of the church, that's not just Christians there in, in the first century. Uh, the followers uh, uh, of God, Yahweh's people from the beginning uh, of time, have largely been a mistreated and persecuted uh, people under oppression by, by various groups. Uh, you'll remember perhaps a few years ago we, we preached through the book of, of 1 Peter. We said at that time that 1 Peter is likely to become the, the gospel of our time because it dealt with this idea uh, of what it is like to be outsiders in, in a culture. 1 Peter begins with, with the words, to the elect exiles. Uh, and we said at that time, all of us like to be the elect. Very few of us like to be the exiles. And we're not used to, in American culture, being exiled. We're used to, in American culture, being at the center of influence and at the center of, of culture. And so we are used to being able to exert various forms of authority, various forms of power, uh, various forms of pressure on, on any given issue, and we have largely been used to getting our own way. And because of that, there has been in our time and in our culture, American culture, sort of a confluence or a, a mixing of, of political power, cultural power with, with our religious reality to the point that we live in a time where it seems as though we as, as followers of Jesus, at least to the, to the, to the, um, 
to the naked eye, and, and at least in the, in, the, in the popular sense, that we have almost completely confused what is our political witness with, with our, our gospel witness, and, and those two have become the same thing. So this week, for instance, they had the, uh, the Value Voters Seminar, uh, or the Value Voters Conference, and various different speakers came, and what was interesting to me about that, uh, without, uh, without picking a side on that, because it's really a side issue to what I want to say, but what was interesting was when people would stand up and declare that to be Christian, you must vote in this way, or to be Christian, you must do this, so much so that, that uh, I saw yesterday a video of a, of a pastor on TV referring to, to uh, Christians and evangelicals who refused to vote for one of the candidates as, as panty-waist evangelicals with, uh, with no backbone. And so it's interesting that what has happened in our country is that we view authority and power within a culture or within a political system as a part of what it is to be Christian or at least as a part of what it is to have, have rights. It's, um, it's true in how we talk about things. It is true in how we view things. It's true in some of our retelling of, of American history. Uh, we are fond of saying this is a Christian nation founded upon Christian principles, to which I respond is that is a simplistic reading of history founded upon simplistic principles and not entirely true. Um, and the idea, though, that idea woven into our, our, to our religious beliefs has, has wrought uh, results. And so then, when we encounter things in, in, in Scripture that talk about, about persecution, when we encounter things in Scripture talk about the reality of persecution, when we encounter things in Scripture that talk about, uh, about suffering as if that is the expected lifestyle of the follower of Jesus, we get very uncomfortable because we are not used to thinking of ourselves as sufferers. We view ourselves as the ones who are triumphant in any given culture, in any given time. And so that makes Revelation different difficult for us because, frankly, we are the most privileged Christians probably in the history of, of time, right? And so that is, uh, you're free to research that and come back to me. Maybe there's a more privileged group of Christians out there. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that surely. I'm just saying it seems as though we are a privileged group of, of, of Christians. We, we seem to be... Uh, in a lot of senses, very much like uh, the the spoiled child raised in the spoiled home of, of the Christian world. And the problem with that is then it makes us hard for us to understand where Scripture is, is coming from. And so that's an introduction before I read and say what I am about to say uh, to you from Revelation 10. I will remind you just... Um, uh, I'll secondly remind you, but this is the most important thing I, I will say, is that when we read Revelation, what we are looking to encounter is the person of Jesus Christ. We're looking to see who he is. We are looking to ask us, what does this say about Jesus? That is largely the point of Revelation. Remember, it is the revelation of Jesus or the revelation about Jesus. So who is Jesus? What does this tell us? But I'm going to read to us from Revelation chapter 10 now. 
Uh, Then I saw again, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on his sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as was announced to his servants, the prophets." Then I heard the voice that I had heard from heaven. Then the verse that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is in the open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea in the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it, eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. As I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many people in nations, in languages, and kings. Here then is, is another vision in heaven. It's one of those, those grand visions. John sees a vision. He sees a vision of a mighty angel. And so let us deal with this mighty angel for a minute. Then I saw a mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was wrapped in a cloud. He was with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his leg like pillars of fire. All of these are are clues or indicators uh, to who you are looking at, who who you are seeing. These indicators come both from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, and actually from the book of Revelation itself. Right, So that when the angel that you are looking at, who is it to be identified with, the angel is known by his identification. So where have we seen one who comes as a cloud? Where have we seen one who has a rainbow over his head? Where have we seen one whose face is like the sun? Where have we seen one whose legs are like pillars of fire? Where have we seen each of those has been used descriptively of Yahweh or Jesus himself, either in the Old Testament or in Revelation itself. So each of these, you remember, for instance, going back to chapter 5, which uh, this, this chapter is intentionally asking us to, to recall. But going back to chapter 5, we saw the throne. Uh, in the throne room, there was above his head a rainbow that was uh, the color of emerald. That was who was on that, th- who was there, who was the lamb upon the throne. That was Jesus himself. Uh, his face was like the sun. We encountered that earlier in Revelation. We will encounter it again later in Revelation. Who was that but Christ himself? His legs were like pillars of fire. That's chapter 1, chapter 2 of Revelation. Who was that but Christ himself? Uh, and so each of these, it is, when you encounter the word angel, the, the question becomes, is it, is it a special, particular mighty angel, or is this angel, or, or what is the identification of the angel? I think it is best to read the angel in the context of this angel representing Jesus himself. It is uh, um, analogous or, or, or similar to in the Old Testament when the angel of Yahweh came, and the angel of Yahweh was to be associated with Yahweh himself. This angel that comes 
comes, this great angel then is to be seen as the very person of Christ. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Again, there's other identifiers there. But essentially what he sees is another, another vision of Jesus him, himself. The glory of Jesus is shown through the descriptions of Jesus. He was wrapped in, in a cloud. There's a certain mightiness. There's a certain greatness. There's a certain wonder to this reality that if you are using a cloud as your blanket that, that says something about you. There is a rainbow over his head. Again, recalling chapter 5, the rainbows of, of emerald. There is, there is glory. There is wealth. Uh, his face was like the sun. Again, the idea here is that this angel is, is glorious. This angel is amazing. When you look up, uh, uh, upon him, uh, uh, he, he shines with, with a glory that is, that is almost well, is incomprehensible to the human mind. His legs are like pillars of fire, speaks to his strength speaks to who he is. Each of, those, uh, each of those descriptions meant to point to this idea that the one who stands before him is other. The one who stands before him is amazing. The one who stands before him is glorious. The one who stands before him is wondrous. The one who stands before him, even though it is expressed, is largely inexpressible, right? You have a description, and the description, though John sees it and, and says it with his, his mouth, uh, it is a description uh, uh, of of Jesus and who Jesus is. And even though we read the description, we can only understand that almost symbolically because we do not have, have the, the breadth of thought and the breadth of understanding to even understand fully what it means to see standing before you one who comes wrapped in a cloud like it's his blanket with a rainbow over his head, a face like the sun and legs like pillars of fire. The, the idea is, is, is that John sees a vision of, of God. He sees a vision of Jesus himself in, in this angel that is so great, so amazing, so wondrous that even though it's described, it's simultaneously indescribable, right? I understand what he is saying. I understand the point, which is to point to his glory. I understand uh, the, the, the reason he chose various things that points to the glory of, of his person and who he is and what he does. And yet, at the end of the day, I do not have the mental faculties or the mental ability or perhaps the spiritual ability to fully comprehend what it is to be standing in the presence of a God like this. He is amazing. He is wondrous. He is glorious. He is at once, uh, he, he is at once being described, and at the same time, it's almost incomprehensible in the description. It's too great and too wide and too wonderful for your mind to even, even fully comprehend. But here he comes. This is the angel coming down from heaven, I would say that we would identify that angel as Christ himself, as the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament was, was, was Yahweh. Uh, so the angel here is Jesus. Verse 2, he had a little scroll open in his hand. Now, we're looking back to... to to uh, what happened in, in chapters 4, 5, and 6. You remember last time there was someone with a scroll in his hand that they were looking for the one who was worthy to open the seals. The seals have been opened, and so here is the little scroll. Is it the, the, the same scroll? Is it, a, is, it, is it a different scroll? It is probably best to understand this little scroll as the same scroll that was open earlier, and if not the same, the exact same scroll containing the same, the, the same decrees, containing the same, uh, the same statement or the, 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 
containing the same message as the scroll that was opened before. Um, It's interesting to say, is the scroll little because the scroll is small, or is the scroll little because the scroll looks little in comparison to the mighty angel that comes down out of heaven? We don't know the answer to, to that question exactly, but it could be either of those. Any way you look at it, he has a scroll open in his hand. The scroll in, in earlier in Revelation contained, contained the God's providence. The scroll in their hand, the, the seals contained the whole of human history. The scroll... Uh, that the, with the seals that were open were, was what was given to Jesus because it demonstrated his authority, his ability, his sovereignty to rule over all that is and over all of history. And so in the scroll that was opened uh, that we talked about in chapters 4, 5, and, and 6, in that, that scroll that was opened when the seals were opened, it, 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 it said, said in a... Uh, the, the, the point of, of that message was that Jesus was the one who was worthy to open it, and because he was worthy to open the seals, he was also worthy to carry out the message, the edicts, and the truth of, of the scroll. In other words, Jesus is the sovereign one over history, dealing with, uh, with all of human history and everything that happens in, in human history, but specifically his plan of redemption and his plan for, uh, of, of, of judgment for all of mankind. So the 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 contained in in the in the scroll that had been opened before the seals that had been opened were were God's plan to redeem and rescue mankind through His plan of sending Jesus the sinless one to die on the behalf of people who sinned against Him rebels to His cause rescue them and draw unto Himself a people and because Jesus was able to open these seals, because Jesus was able to open the scrolls, it demonstrated his authority to carry out the actions of the scrolls. He is the lamb who was slain. He is the lamb who was resurrected. So he is the one who carries out the plan of salvation. He is also the one who carries out the plan of judgment. And so in, encompassed in the scroll is salvation and judgment. So that's the scroll in chapter uh, uh, that we have dealt with Earlier, here he opens the little scroll open in his hand. We would suggest that it is likely the same scroll. If it's not the same scroll, it has the same idea. And both speak to Christ's authority to carry out the whole of human history, specifically his redemptive plan for mankind as carried out in his death and resurrection. So he had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land to essentially say, I am sovereign over creation. That which is on land, I am sovereign over. That which is in the sea, I am sovereign over. There is nothing in in the cosmos that I am not the sovereign ruler of. Of. I have power over it. And so it's, a, again, a, a, a restatement of this idea that the one who holds in his hand the, the, the scroll has the authority to carry out what is in the, in the scroll. And the reason he has the authority is because he's sovereign over everything that is. Whether it's on the land or on the sea, it, it, he is sovereign. He is God. He is Lord. He is king over 
that. So he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Remember, another indication that the angel we're dealing with is Jesus himself, that the lion, there was a lamb, a lion who looked like a lamb. He was the one who was, who was able to open the seals on the scroll. That is earlier in Revelation. Again, the angel has a voice of a lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the seven thunders, what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. In other words, he, he takes the scroll, he puts his foot on the land and his foot on the sea, the seven trumpets sound, the seven, or, uh, the seven thunders sound, the seven thunders are the cycles of judgment against those who, who won't, uh, who, who, who deny him, who deny his authority. His authority is about to be demonstrated to them when the seven thunders sound. John's about to write it down, and he's told, seal up the seven thunders and do not write them down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the sea, and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. In other words, this speaks to the idea that we, that we talked about is that we live in, in a coddled culture. We live in a, in a very nice culture. Things go quite well for most of us, even those of us who are like, who, who think things are going poorly for us. A lot of times it's just we haven't contextually seen anyone who things are going really poorly for, right? And so things are typically, as Americans, even, even, uh, even uh, poor Americans, other Americans, things are typically going well for us. I often say I travel to the, to the Philippines. Uh, one of the things that happens if you're a chunky white guy and you get off a bus in, in the Philippines... Uh, is that you get off a bus and you might be looking for where you have to go and then you'll feel something you'll look down and you realize that there's a large group of, of, of children from the village or the city rubbing your belly, right? And so <laughs> that has happened to me more, more than once. The best experience was when our, my friend Kevin was with us. Kevin is a very large African-American man. I am, a, I am a portly Caucasian man, right? And so you take two chunky guys and send them into a culture where they struggle to have food. And their assumption is, first off, I've never seen anything in this case. They hadn't seen anyone so, so white or anyone so dark in, in their, their context. And neither had they seen anyone so chunky. And so they were rubbing our bellies. And, um, and I looked down and smiled at them. They thought it was the most fun. They'd run away, and I'd look. I'd go back to what I was doing. They'd be back. They'd be rubbing my belly because they'd never seen anything like it. And so, if you send Kevin and I someplace together, it is it is like uh, it, it's like a walking billboard. Like if they needed to run a VBS in any village, they go. You two go walk down the road. Every kid's gonna follow you. They've never seen anything uh, anything like it because. Our size suggested to them wealth, right? That's in the Philippines. It's great because you can ask a question. You know, hey, they really seem to like this person from the America. Is it because this person has blonde hair? Is it because she has light skin? Why are the everyone seems to really be interested? And then they say, no, it's because she's fat. And you're like, I'm glad she wasn't here to hear you say that. But that's like normal. Like it's a compliment because. You're fat, you must be rich. And so I say all of that to say this is what people don't understand is America is like the only country where even those of our, those of our uh, even, even our people in poverty are obese, right? We talk about obesity problems in, in America. A lot of our obesity problems are happening amongst our impoverished 
classes. And which is not to denigrate, by the way, the reality of poverty in America, but simply to say that sometimes we don't have a clue how rough it is out there and how good we have it. And if you see other people who don't have it as well as you, it sort of opens up your eyes. And part of what we need to do to understand Revelation like we should is to try and see through other eyes because all of us in this context, no matter how no matter how poor we are on an individual level and how poorly we have it, there are people who have it significantly worse. And so those people who had, in this, this case, the people who this is written to, the people are soon going to be under horrific, uh, horrific persecution from, from the, the rulers and horrific persecution from, uh, from the emperors. The, these people are rightly crying out, for a, into the delay. Because that's where he says, he promises that there will be no more delay. No more delay in what? No more delay in pouring out his judgment on the, the persecutors of God's people, right? And so people go, well, that's mean. Why does God do that? See, there's debate about when Revelation was written. Some people would say, say Revelation's written in AD 90, and some people would say it was written before, before AD 70, right? But either way, in the AD 70s, before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, there was a ruler named Nero. And Nero was a, was a, a maniacal ruler. And one of the things Nero liked to do was he liked to take Christians and impale them on sticks, dip them in oil, and light them on fire so that they could provide the light for the parties and the galas and the debaucheries he was having, right? And so if you're a people, whether Revelation is written in AD 90 or AD 70, you still probably lived through Nero, and you're going to live through successive rulers and successive emperors, and they are going to carry out horrific things against Jesus followers, if you have perhaps seen your family, if you've seen your friends, if you've had the experience of seeing them, them killed for their faith, if you've had the experience of seeing them uh, uh, lit on fire for their faith, remember even here in this in this passage, or in Revelations written by John, John's banished to the Isle of Patmos. He, they had tried to kill him for preaching Jesus. It didn't work. They dropped him into a vat of boiling oil, and he didn't die. But even John has experienced that. If you've had those sorts of experiences, then you are going to naturally understand when they cry out, how long, O Lord, before you bring your judgment against these people who try and kill us and persecute us? How long will you allow this to go on? How long will you allow our people to be destroyed? How long will you allow them to be hurt? How long will you allow them to be boiled? How long will you allow them to be drawn and quartered? How long will you allow them to be killed? How long, how long, how long, how long? And the reason we don't relate to the how long in our culture is because as I've said, and you need to hear this even though we don't like it, is we are probably the most spoiled church <laughs> culture in history. But the angel Jesus himself, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. There's coming a time when Jesus himself is going to wipe out evil. Right? He at the cross has already triumphed over evil, but there's coming a time of coronation when he will abolish 
evil. The abolishment has begun. The, 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 the sin has lost. Evil cannot win. Um, I often use this, and you, uh, you guys have heard me use this, but I often use the term scoreboard. See, the scoreboard at the, at the death of, of Jesus said, Jesus, infinity, evil, zero or maybe infinity in the other direction. In other words, Jesus had already won, and now what you have is the running clock of history. In sports, when, you, when one team gets up by too much at a certain point in the game, they turn on a running clock, because the running clock means the clock doesn't stop for anything. We're just trying to get out of here. That team lost. We're in the running clock era of history. Satan has lost by virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Evil has lost by the virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anything that would come against the way of our Lord has lost by virtue of his death and resurrection. And so now the, the victory is won, but we're in the running clock era, and we're waiting for the clock to run. And these people are, are, have been yelling and calling out in the preceding chapters, how long, how long? Come on, clock, run out. Come on, clock, run out. Come on, give us vindication. Give us something. Wipe out the evil. Wipe out the struggle. Wipe out the persecutors. They've been crying out. And now then, Jesus himself says, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. In other words, there's coming a day. Talked about, by the way, in earlier chapters where there would be no more sin, no more death, but no more tears, no more struggle. None of that is coming that day. There's coming a day of the final trumpet where the mystery of God is to be fulfilled. Mystery typically in the New Testament is, is a reference to God's fulfilling something in a way that, that, uh, that was probably not expected by, by the Jewish people be, beforehand. So it's the way in which he fulfills the, the prophecies that had been given, but a way in which they were not expected. And so a lot of chapter 10 is a reference to, to, to prophecies given in, in Daniel. And Daniel's anticipating, looking forward to this, to this same time. But it's saying that the mystery is going to be fulfilled. The mystery of God would be fulfilled. It's mystery because their expectation of how that would be fulfilled. Though they were looking for a Messiah, they did not expect the Messiah to come as he had. Though they were looking for a Savior, they did not expect the Savior to come as he had. Though they were expecting a king, they did not expect the king to come as he had. They expected all of those probably by military triumph. They expected all of those by virtue of military victory and military might and a great ruler who would come and he would say, go against their oppressors. He'd conquer their oppressors in battle and he would set them up as a national people and they would no longer be ruled over, but they would get to rule over the other nations. They're no longer be an oppressor, which would have been a good fulfillment for them, but it was not the best fulfillment for them, and the ways of God were better than what they could imagine and what they understood and what they expected. And the mystery of God was this, is that Jesus did not come in, in, in military might. Jesus did not come with a show of, uh, 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 of 
strength. Jesus did not come with a show of power, meaning he did not come. Uh, we used to sing at, at, at church, church the song. He could have, he could have summoned the 10,000 angels, right? And the idea is he could have summoned 10,000 angels and destroyed his enemies, wiped them out, and set up his nation. And his nation could have been the geopolitical nation, and the people would have had to look at it, and nothing would have come. That would have been one way, but the way in which Jesus did, instead of coming with a show of geopolitical power, he came with a show of supernatural humility, Instead of stepping out of heaven and into, into the military, he stepped out of heaven and stepped into the manger. Instead of stepping out of heaven and, and, and onto a throne or a command post where, where he directed armies, he stepped out of heaven and he stepped into human teenagerness. Right, he stepped into into all the things that it meant to be human, and he did not start out with with a demonstrative declaration of his of his own rule. Could you imagine having been a teenager who was God and being picked on? Right, I have teenagers. I have three three teenagers currently. What I always tell middle school, I have three middle schoolers. I should have said what I always tell middle schoolers is just wait for high school. It's so much better than middle school because middle school is this awful time and this weird body change and emotional change and people are saying things. It's like this awful time. And I always think, and a bit of this is enculturated into into American thinking, but I still think it works. It is interesting to me that the God of heaven steps out of heaven and he comes as a baby and he had to go through 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 puberty and pubescence and all there is with that like what did did the son of man the the lord of scripture um have have pimples did he have to struggle with with with, with hair that was fly away maybe i'm interpreting myself into it but i remember junior high uh i've seen the pictures i rue the pictures uh, but I remember junior high in my oily, zitty face where I was on medicine to try and get rid of it and couldn't do it, and hair that I couldn't control, and the awkwardness of that. Like, I don't know what Jesus went through, but I know that he stepped out of heaven, and the mystery of it was this, that instead of stepping straight out of heaven into, into his military might, he stepped out of heaven into a manger. He went from a manger into toddlerhood, toddlerhood into, in, into preteenness, preteen this into a teenager and he, he he did all of those things he lived as a human that is a mysterious way to do it that's not the way they were expecting that to happen he did not come with a show of military might rather ironically he came with a show of supernatural humility both in the way he lived and in the way that he died see his his victory is the most mysterious amazing victory ever because they thought those who would have come against Jesus would have thought when they put him to death that they had overcome him. And that would, that would seem to be logical. And yet, here he is, risen from the dead. Here he is, uh, triumphing over everything. 
the mystery of God would be fulfilled. The mystery of God was this, is that he chose to fulfill all of human history, not with a show of military might, but with the ultimate show of humility when the God of the universe was put to death on a cross for the sins of all mankind, when the wrath of God was poured out against Jesus for the things that you and I did, when Jesus breathed his last, when Jesus was laid in a grave, when Jesus was in a grave for three days, and then three days later he walked out of the grave that is in a, a, a completely different way than they expected the, the prophecy to be fulfilled. But in that fulfillment, it is the fulfillment that changed all of human history, right? It's not just, the, just a military victory for one, for one nation, for one time, that's limited to a moment, that's limited to a place, but it is the eternal victory of God. And there is coming a time at the sounding of the seventh, the, the, the seventh trumpet when all evil will be, be, be wiped out, when all evil will be, will be destroyed, when the scoreboard will finally expire at the end of an athletic contest, usually the horn sounds. Well, when the horn sounds in, in this contest, Jesus' victory will have been infinity to nothing. He will have completely and totally won. And at his victory, he will call to himself his servants, and his servants will get to spend eternity in joy with him. The irony of his victory is the, is, is the same as his call. Like, Jesus overcame through suffering, and, and he bids his followers to do the same. And because the people in, who received revelation were familiar with that reality, they were familiar with the, the, the suffering they could hear this, this statement that there's coming a time when God judges, and they could hear it in a way that's probably harder for us to hear. Verse 8 says this, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is opened in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Remember, when the scroll was, was sealed... When the scroll was sealed, the, the scroll was said, who is worthy to come and take the scroll? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? The only one who is found worthy to come and take the scroll is the lamb, the, 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 the lion of Judah. The, the, he's the, the only one, right? The, the one who's, who has the rainbows over his head and the clapping thunder and the one who's been, been described all throughout Revelation in those amazing terms. Those, he's, he was the only one who was found worthy to come and take the scroll, the scroll and open its seals. You remember there, there, that, that John at one point is, begins to weep because he thinks no one is worthy to open the seals. No one is able to carry out human history. No one has the authority. No one is able to carry out redemption. But then they said, don't cry. Look, the lamb, he is able to come and he is able to break its seals. So then the lamb comes and takes the scroll. Right, so this chapter is a is a restatement in, in, in a, is a restatement of, of, of that chapter only in a different way. In that chapter, the Lamb, who is Jesus, coming came and took the scroll, and that symbolized his authority to carry out that which was in the scroll. In this chapter, John is going to come and take from the Lamb or take from the angel, take from Jesus the scroll. 
Right? And that is going to symbolize what? Here is what it's going to symbolize. It is going to symbolize the authority of the church, or the authority of John, who is representative of the church, the authority to follow Jesus, the authority vested in the church to be, his, to be God's people and to be a part of what he is carrying out in history. Right? So what does that, that symbolize? It symbolizes that Jesus is going to give to John, and by extension to the church, authority. That's why it says, says elsewhere that we will reign with him. It talks about the elders reigning with him. This is the authority given to him. What does this authority entail? The authority, uh, this authority entails the ability to speak the things that are in the scroll to speak the truths that are in the scroll, to tell the truths that are in the scroll. We then, the church, is given a role in history. The church is given an authority in history. That is why John is told to come and take the scroll. Go and take the scroll that is open in, in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it, it will, and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So here's, here's how I think in our culture we've thought of the authority of the church, right? We've thought of the authority of the church as kind of the moral police of society, the moral police of, uh, of culture. At least in, in my, my generation, um, I was younger, but I was younger when there was a rise of, of, of something called the, the religious right and a rise of something called the moral majority. And these were political organizations. Um, we've had many, many, many political organizations from, from Christian backgrounds. And their goal largely was to make sure that the, the moral authority of the church was established in, in the nation. That's what they tried to do. And so they tried to carry out the moral authority of the church through various political means. And so I think that when we hear or have thought about the authority of the church, we think our authority is largely vested in making the culture behave as though the culture were, were the church, so to speak, right? And so we are the moral police of culture. Culture ought not do that we will go stop them. Culture ought not do that. We will try and, uh, try and enact a law. Culture ought not do that. We will enact a boycott. Culture seems like it's going bad. We will throw our energy behind this candidate. Culture's going bad that way. We'll throw our energy behind that candidate. Uh, this has manifested itself in all kinds of ways throughout our culture. Not all of those, those are, are bad, but I'm saying is that largely we have viewed our our job, our responsibility, our authority as carrying out the, the, the political authority or the moral policing of the universe on behalf of God. And so largely, that's been our authority. I want to suggest to you that that is a misplaced view of the authority of the, of the church for several reasons. Okay? If you've been around Crosswinds long enough, you've heard us talk about something called moralism. Moralism is the idea that what God came to do was make good little girls and good little boys. And so moralism is the idea that what God wants is people to be good little people. And moralism is the idea that if you work hard enough, you can be a good little boy or you can be a good little girl. And all it takes is a little bit more work and a little bit more energy. And if you're not being a good little boy or a good little girl, you need to work harder. We combine that with, with, with what we call moralistic therapeutic deism, the idea that God exists 
to comfort us, the idea that God exists to make us happy, uh, the idea that God is there, but largely what we have enacted then is a moralistic system in which we only barely need Jesus to be involved in the story. Jesus becomes a moral example of what is right. Jesus becomes a moral story of what's right, but what he really wants from you is for you to be a good little boy and you to be a good little girl, and if you're good enough, then God will be pleased with you. The reality is, is that is not gospel. That is, in fact, contra-gospel. It's anti-gospel. This idea that you could be good, and if you just work harder and be good enough, then God would be pleased with you is not salvific. It has no power to save. It's It's not gospel because it's not good news, right? Because it's a good news that denies the reality of the bad news, which is this. You are not a good boy, and you are not a good girl. And what God wants from you is not for you to be slightly better, He's not, they want you to be, they want you to make a few changes to the few of the things you did. God did not come to you, take stock of your life and go, oh, it's not bad. There's something to work with. But the whole testimony of scripture is this, is that you are depraved. You are broken. You are wrecked. You are evil. And you need to come to grips with that reality. And I need to come to grips with that reality. Right? I am broken. So what God wants for me is not for me to try harder to be better because I can't try harder and I can't be better. I'm broken. I am by nature sinful. I was born sinful. I'm not a good boy or a good girl. I am a dead man. And what a dead man needs is not a little cleaning up. What a dead man needs is not a little sprucing up. What a dead man needs to hear when he's dead is not to take his vitamins, right? Because here's the reality. A few vitamins have never done a thing to help a dead man. Because a dead man is, and this should be logical, dead. The gospel is this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but Jesus, who is good and loving and wonderful and kind and amazing because of what he did at the cross, because of who he is, came and he has rescued you. He has wiped out your sin. He has not made you into a good boy or a good girl. He has made you into an alive boy (laughs) and an alive girl. You were dead in your trespasses and you did not need more vitamins. You needed resurrection and there's only one method in all of history I know of, to obtain resurrection, and it's through Jesus Christ. And so, so what has happened, though, is that instead of taking the gospel, the good news of the, of the gospel, which starts with the bad news of the reality of us, the good news of the gospel is, though you are broken and dead, he is alive and he is a resurrector because of what he's done. Instead of taking the good news of the, of the gospel, we have not applied that to our own lives and our own churches. We wonder why our teenagers walk, walk away from the church. We wonder why our, why our teenagers, by and large, are not following Jesus. And a lot of it is, is that we grew up in churches that don't preach the gospel. They preach moralism. They preach good boyism. Right? And, and be a good little boy. Don't, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls to do, guys, right? Right? Be a good boy. Be a good girl, right? Don't do those things. We have preached that as, as the gospel. And frankly, that is not compelling enough of a reason to live your life 
on behalf of Jesus. And so they never meet Jesus. They walk away because all you've ever given them is any sort of moralism. Measure up. Be okay. Don't be weird. Don't paint your hair purple. Don't touch this. Don't touch that. Make sure you don't do that. Make sure you don't do that. You have given them a list of don'ts and you have given them zero Jesus. And that is why our teenagers are walking away from the church because they don't know Jesus and they don't know that Jesus is in the church. And we go, why is it happening? It's happening because we've done a horrible job parenting our children. It's happening because we've done a horrible job in the church of preaching the gospel. And I don't say that, that as, as judgment on any of us. That's, that's a cultural reality. It's happening. You want to know why your children are unbelieving? It's because you've given them nothing to believe in and taught them if they, if, if they never touch a cigarette and don't swear, they'll probably be okay. It'll probably be good. I say all of that. That was a parenthesis. So that I could say this. We have taken moralism, which does not work in our own lives, and we have applied it to our government, as if the hope of the world was that the government get, became good little boys and good little girls, right? That, that's what we're, we're longing for. And so we try and apply that to that, and so we try and go, hey, if the government's good, and then we become seduced by power. I've been having this, these conversations because it's political season with my kids a lot lately about why people do this. We saw a movie uh, last night uh, that talked about colonialism and, and imperial colonialism where, where people went in and for the money went in and savaged whole lands. They savaged whole groups of people. They did horrible things. And Why did they do that? Because a lot of them, by the way, claimed to be, be religious, claimed to know Jesus. Why did they do it? They did it because power is seductive. Because political power is seductive. And I worry that political power has seduced the church to the point that we have, we have, we have taken the gospel for our culture and not given them the gospel, but we've, we've given them moralism, right? You be good. You do this. Listen, 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 listen. If our culture stops showing all the movies you don't like because you think they're sinful tomorrow, our culture would still be apart from Christ. It would not be one step closer to Jesus. If our culture stopped doing all the inappropriate things, if our government changed all of its rules to suit what we want, right? If we were able to impose Christian law upon our government, our government would not be one step closer A friend, a friend who has a um, has a roommate. He's got several roommates, and he he loves them all. And they're like, he's like, they're atheists. This one's an atheist. I don't know what to do. This one's an atheist. And he said, and then I've got this other roommate. He's he he's gay, and I don't know what to do. What should I do? Should I tell him about this? And we had a long talk, and what it came down to this is, I said, Matt, you need to love them, love Jesus, and share Jesus with them, because here's the reality. If your roommate were to stop being gay tomorrow, what would the problem be? Said so, he, he still wouldn't know Jesus. Like, yeah, there's there's the heart of the problem. And so, what, what I'm trying to say, rather imperfectly, probably, is this: we think we're going to fix our culture through imposition of moralistic rules and ignoring the fact that the only hope of our culture comes through the mystery of the cross. You want to see our culture changed? Make disciples. 
You want to see, you want to see, you want to see less sin in our culture. You want to see less brokenness in our culture. You want to see less pain in, in, in our culture. You want to see America come back to Jesus? Preach Jesus. Every time you get a chance, Jesus, make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. And then in the making of disciples, then a nation can be transformed. But there has never been a nation that's been transformed in any way that ever mattered eternally apart from a disciple being made. If you doubt that, look at China. China, it's illegal to be, be Christian in, in a lot of sense. They've, they've relaxed those laws some. But it, it's illegal to go to church freely. Religious freedom is greatly restricted. The only real religious freedom is given to the three happiness church. And, and that, that church is government controlled and told what it can say. There's no freedom. Before that, there was, there was much, much larger crackdowns. And they go through various times of crackdowns in China. And yet... In China, where Christianity is essentially illegal, in China, where where uh, where where they're in in the seventies, their emperors declared God dead, right? Their rulers declared God is dead, and he's buried in China, right? They declared God buried in China. In in China, thousands and upon thousands and upon thousands of people continue to come to Jesus. They're coming to Jesus in these house churches and they're being discipled by other people. And as they disciple them, they go out and they disciple somebody else. And as they disciple somebody else, they disciple somebody else. So this amazing thing happens that all over China, people are coming to know Jesus so that the Chinese culture, the Chinese culture where Christianity is technically illegal, where Christianity is, is, is or where, where, Freedom of worship is illegal, where Christianity is greatly stunted, where it's been totally illegal at various points in its history, that the culture of China is in danger of being Christianized. The government of China has a problem because its own governors are coming to Christ and it's becoming Christianized. Do you know what they didn't, do you know what brought it about? Not a single law. They didn't change a single thing on the books. They can't point to anything. They said, yes, this is what is transforming China. You know what's transforming China? Making disciples making disciples. And I worry that our view of authority, the authority of the church is not vested in the making of disciples, but in the making of laws and the voting for the right candidates. That doesn't transform nations. Let's talk quickly about this. The, the, uh, he gets the scroll, and the scroll tastes sweet in his mouth. Right? Block and I were talking about this earlier this week. We said, this is kind of like when you go to the Chinese buffet. You ever go to the Chinese buffet and you eat that stuff and you're like, ah, oh, that's delicious. And by the time you pay and walk out the door, you're like, my stomach hurts so bad. Why did I eat that? We have this deal, Dave and I, that I'm supposed to keep him from going to Chinese buffets. And uh, the other day he manipulated me into not keeping him from going to the buffet. It's, you can pray for us. I said to him, I said, I'm not supposed to let you go. And then he's like, well, I'm like, do you want me to let you go? And then he talked me into it. Anyway, so we went to the buffet, and seriously, like, it tasted sweet going into my mouth. But, oh, my goodness, by the time we left, it was so bitter. Here's, here's what's happened here. Taking the, it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. 
<laughs> I'm supposed to end on a happy note. But here's, here's what he's saying. It tastes sweet in the mouth because the proclamation, the authority of the church is vested. What's the authority given by the scroll to be the proclaimer of the good news of the gospel? But in proclaiming the gospel, you're also proclaiming the reality of judgment. Right? You can't, you can't proclaim the good news that Jesus came to save you and rescue you without proclaiming he came to rescue you from something. And there is the reality of judgment. And there's the reality of Christless eternity. And there's the reality of God pouring out his wrath on you. That's part of the proclamation of the gospel. But the gospel tastes sweet in the mouth because it's the story of Jesus and it tastes sweet. And on the one hand, paradoxically, John longs for it because he knows that the gospel is good and he knows it comes through Jesus and he knows the goodness and he knows that he's been been saved by it. So it tastes good in his mouth. But it's bitter in his stomach. Why? Because here is the reality is that we will be proclaimers of the gospel. We will, we will give the gospel out and we will proclaim it. And the reality is in history that most people will rebel. Most people, you'll, you'll give them the gospel. They'll look at the gospel and they'll choose something else. As a pastor, I experienced this acutely because I'll share with someone, like, you need to do this, you need to do this, and they'll be, they'll be like teetering. And I'll say to them, listen, if you do the wrong thing, you can't expect you can't expect good things to happen. You can't expect you're going to place yourself in a dangerous place. Don't do it. And a lot of times they will, they will act like they're going to follow Jesus and they will choose to follow their own desires. I have never, ever seen that turn out well. And it doesn't matter how many times I tell a person, don't do what you're about to do. Don't do it. They, they, they make the decision, I will pursue my own happiness. And they pursue their own happiness at the expense of their own joy. And they pursue their own happiness at the expense of their own future. And what they usually do is they destroy and they wreck their lives. It is a bitter thing to proclaim the truth of the gospel and watch it ignored. If you've ever shared the gospel with someone you know desperately needs it and you know that their hope is in it and you know that they need to repent and you know that if they just follow Jesus, he could, he could transform them. You know, you know, you know. And they look you in the face and they choose to ignore Jesus. That's a bitter thing. That's a bitter, bitter thing. That's what John's experiencing because the reality is we go and we proclaim the good news. We proclaim the worthiness of a lamb who is with his blood ransomed people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. And, and the scripture tells us that one day we'll sing in heaven together with that, that multitude. But this next passage just tells us that multitudes from every nation will ignore the call to know Jesus and they'll choose their own way. That's a bitter thing. It's a bitter thing. So we find ourselves under the authority of a good king. We find ourselves under the authority of, uh, of Jesus. We find ourselves followers of, of, of a good king, and one day he's going to carry out the consummation of all things, that there's going to be the, the, the last trumpet will sound, and when the last trumpet sounds, he's going to wipe out all tears. He's going to wipe out all evil. That's good news. And yet attached to the good news is bad news. Many will ignore the call to follow him. And that's bitter. 
And yet the authority given to John and also to the church is this, to proclaim the good news, to proclaim, yes, that judgment could come, but also that Jesus has already taken the judgment so you don't have to. We get to be gospel proclaimers. We don't get to decide who knows Jesus. We don't get to decide who comes to him. But we have been given the authority to declare him. That's the authority given to the church. It's not political authority. It's not voting authority. It's not moral majority authority. It's gospel authority. We get to proclaim the gospel. And I want to encourage us that, yes, it is true, many will not come to Jesus, and that is bitter. But let us still proclaim the sweetness because many will come. And isn't it much more bitter to know that you didn't proclaim the good news and people are dying apart from Christ than it is to know that Jesus is in the business of saving? Let us be gospel declarers. Let us carry out the authority vested in the church. The authority might be summed up, by the way, and what Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. Let's do that. Pray with me.